This is an Our Savior Evangelical Free Church podcast. To learn more, visit osefc.org. We are in week number three of this series that we are calling Equipped, Learning to Apply the Whole Bible. I hope you have, by this point, a study guide. I want to thank those of you who've Uh, contributed $5 toward that, or if you had it shipped to you, $10. um, We're grateful for that help. If you haven't, uh, you can do that by going to our website or following the link um, that was sent out in an email. And if uh, you don't want to, don't worry about it. We'd rather put that resource into your hands. As I mentioned before, the the way that you waste this resource is by not taking advantage of it because they're pre-printed. We already have them. We, We bought one for you by faith in advance. Well, let's go ahead and let's pray, and then you can meet me over in Genesis 15, either in your Bible or just by typing in GEN 15 into your app. We'll probably do just the same thing. Let's pray together. God, may you receive the praise, honor, and glory this morning. You make promises, and you are faithful to fulfill them, despite our unfaithfulness. May we see the glorious truth in the scriptures today that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you have made an everlasting covenant with us, and you will never break it. May that be our hope and our encouragement this morning. May we learn more, not just to know more, but to encounter the one true God and give glory and praise to you. Amen. Have you ever tried to make a deal with God. You might know the kind of deal that I'm talking about. You you need something, you want something, and you promise that if God gives it to you, you will obey him for every moment the rest of your life, or you will worship him, or you'll get up every morning early to read your Bible, or you'll pray for 30 minutes every day if God will just do this one little thing for you. I've tried that. I've done it. I've made deals with God. I wonder how many people are making deals with God in 2020. I mean, there has to be, with everything happening in the world, there has to be an uptick in trying to persuade God through making a little deal with him. Doesn't there? You know, the word word unprecedented is, has got to be the most cliched word of, of the year. It's unprecedented how often we hear the word unprecedented. And it may be unprecedented, unprecedented how many people are trying to make a little deal with God. You know, there's the, there's the financial deal. God, if you will give me this job, or God, if you will just give me this money that I need, I promise to be more generous. I promise to tithe. I promise to give. I've never done that before, but I promise to do it if you'll just give me this new job that I want. Or there's the, the safety deal. God, if you will keep me or my family safe, I'll, I'll, I'll serve you. I'll take that position in the church. I'll start serving the poor, whatever it is. My favorite deal, I think, probably is the love deal. God, if this guy or girl would just look at me, I promise my whole life I'll never ask for anything else from you if I could just have their affections. The trouble with deals with God is that we're terrible at following through on the deal. We're terrible at following through on the promises that we make God, but not him. 
God always fulfills the promises that he makes. And this morning, we're going to look at God making promises. And when he makes them, we can be sure and it's clear as we trace them through the Bible and even into present day that he never breaks his promises. He always follows through on his commitments. So this is the the third week in this overview of the Bible. I just want to show you 13, I think the 13 biggest movements of God in the Bible. And then we're combining those big movements with teaching study skills that you can use on your own so that you feel more equipped, more confident to read God's word for yourself. So let's pick it up this morning in Genesis 15. And with each passing week, it's going to get a little bit harder. But I want to help orient you to the part of the Bible story that we're in. And then I want to put that in real world terms. I kind of want to set the stage in the world. Because as we're looking at what happens in the Bible, one of the most important things to remember is that the Bible is the story of God, but it's also a narrative that takes place in the very world that we live in. This is not a fantasy novel. This is not sci-fi. These events really took place. And so it's important that we remember that. Sometimes they can feel so distant culturally, chronologically, even worldview-wise. We've got a kind of a different way of understanding the world than they did in ancient Mesopotamia and the ancient Near East. But these things really happen, and so it's good if we ground ourselves in where they are. So we started at the beginning of the world. That's where the Bible starts, with the creation of the world, and God shows himself there in the very first words of the Bible to be a powerful, generous and very loving creator who makes the world just the way it should be. Right away, after the world is all set just the way that God wants it, rebellion against this creator ensues from the creation, and the world falls into a state of brokenness. And we see the results to this day of that brokenness all around us. But what the early chapters of Genesis teach is that while there is much need for reconciliation in the world, our first need isn't to make peace, we'll kind of say horizontally in the world. Our very first need is to be reconciled to have peace with God vertically. If he is seen as up and we're seen as down, the vertical dimension of reconciliation, Genesis 3, shows us needs to happen first. It needs to take place of primary importance. In fact, until there's vertical reconciliation with God, there's not too much hope for horizontal reconciliation long-term among people. And that's seen more and more as Genesis goes on and then the Bible goes on. So at the very end of Genesis 3, Adam and Eve, first man and woman, are sent out of the Garden of Eden, partly as a result of their sin, but also because God's gracious, and they could no longer remain there. 
It's for their own good that they're sent out. They have two sons. One murders the other. Then they have a third son. His name is Seth. And the Bible's story carries on through the story and the line of Seth. And at that point, we get a lot of the creation, the first man and the first woman, their family. But then the Bible begins making jumps of hundreds of years. Hundreds of years in a, in a single verse. But it notes that all throughout the world is being populated. People are having sons and daughters. But these generations aren't any better than the one that came before. In fact, the world gets worse. People get more rebellious against God as the generations pass. Eventually, Genesis teaches us that the human race is in such bad shape that God kills almost everyone alive with the great flood, leaving only one fairly small family to repopulate the earth. And unfortunately, that doesn't turn out any better than the, the first family that God put into the world. So not long after this flood, the patriarch of this lone remaining family, Noah, behaves in some very disturbing ways. And we find ourselves right back where we started. A world full of people who rebel against God and violate the purity of of him in his rightful place as creator. So we learn within the very first chapters of the Bible that if God is going to redeem and save and restore what he has created and what has been broken, he will have to do something else. He needs a different plan. And that's where we pick up the story this week is God needs a different plan in Genesis 15. He's going to do something new. So follow along in your Bible. Follow along in your Bible as I begin reading Genesis 15. We're going to start at verse 1, God doing a new work. So it says in Genesis 15:1, after these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram, in a vision. Now let's just stop there for a minute as we meet Abram. Sometimes the, the Bible tells us grand things that God is doing. He's doing them all over the whole world and big movements of God are taking place. But often the Bible story is told through the events, through the lives of individuals. You have to understand that about the Bible. God is God of the whole world and he's always doing things everywhere. But often the way that his work is best seen is through how he's working in an individual's life. And Genesis introduces us to God then and sets us up to read the rest of the Bible. But the rest, most of the rest of Genesis now is about Abram in his small family. So if we're going to understand Genesis, and then really if we're going to understand the rest of the whole Bible, we need to know this man, Abram. He was originally from a place called Ur. That would be in modern-day Iraq. He first moved then from Ur to Haran, 
which would be near the southern border of Turkey and the northern border of Syria, right on that border. And then God spoke to Abram and told him to go live in a place called Canaan. And God said, go there, because eventually that's going to be the home of a great nation that would descend from Abram. Listen to what God promises Abram in Genesis 12. He said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in, all, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That is some promise. That's some word that God brings to Abram. It's actually more than a promise. We call it a covenant We've got to know a little bit about what covenants are if we're going to understand the story of Scripture because they keep coming up throughout the Bible. God makes covenants. A covenant is an agreement that not only contains a promise, but a covenant binds together the two parties or those making a covenant. Think of a marriage covenant. One person can't just say, I like that girl. Let's, we're married now. No, no, no. The, the, the girl has to agree to marry the guy. The fact that God makes covenants with people is remarkable because of what we said earlier. People break promises. God never does. Yet God is still willing to bind himself to us in a covenant promise, knowing full well that we won't completely hold up our end of the deal. But he always will. This is the God that we're introduced to for the rest of the Bible. He binds himself to us, knowing full well we're going to blow it. The study skill, the Bible study skill that we're pairing with this chapter is learning to do biblical theology. Biblical theology. There's a definition of it in your study guide, and I'm going to expand on that throughout this message this morning. You might know that theology is the study of God. That's what it literally means. But you might not know within theology, there are different kinds of theology. Maybe you've heard of a systematic theology. Usually systematic theology starts with a topic, let's just say, for example, sin. And what systematic theology will do is it'll gather all the relevant Bible verses about sin, and then it will try to synthesize their teaching. There's historical theology. Historical theology is the study of how people throughout the history of the work of God and then into the church have done theology how theology has been changed and how it's been shaped and new contributions that have been made throughout history. That's important. Biblical theology, what we're concentrating on this morning, is rooted, you might guess, 
right within the very pages of the Bible. And biblical theology takes a theme and traces that theme through the scripture so that we can see how the work of God, the nature of God, and the things that God does, things that are important to him and near his heart, are progressively revealed throughout the pages of scripture. And we need to engage biblical theology in particular because it helps us to put the story of God in perspective as it unfolds. In other words, biblical theology is a discipline and is a skill that helps us enter into the story of the Bible. So think about it like this. Think about the different kinds of theology like this. Let's just say somebody asks you, are the Cubs good this year? You could, you could say, well, I looked at their record. They've won quite a bit more than they've lost. They made the playoffs. I looked up some stats. Some of their star players seem to be having good years. Yeah, they are good. You could do all that without ever watching a game. Or if somebody says, hey, are the Cubs good? You can say, hey, I've watched a lot of baseball because I don't do anything else this summer. All I do is sit at home and there's been baseball on. And I've gotten to know the strengths and the weaknesses of the particular players. I've seen some of the crucial games. I even kind of get a sense of the character of the team. And so I feel like I can answer that question. So there's two different kind of ways to answer are they good. You can just look at their record and some stats, never having seen the team, just the box score. Or you can watch the team, or you can enter in, you can kind of follow their season. Biblical theology helps us to follow the work of God. There are different approaches to the same question. We're going to do systematic theology later. But this is biblical theology. And we need to know how to do this because it will help us understand how God has been revealing himself to people for millennia. And in turn, it, this will help us to see how God still reveals himself to people today. If you want to get to know God more in your life, you need to know how to do biblical theology. Another reason we need to know how to do biblical theology is that parts of the Bible can be really foreign to us. It helps us to enter the world and even the minds of biblical men and women. We're going to do that with Abram in a few minutes. A third reason we need to study biblical theology is that biblical theology pushes us. I even want to say it forces us to examine the breadth and the expanse of the Bible. And it brings out, biblical theology brings out the best in the Bible. You can't do biblical theology without reading large chunks of the Bible. It's harder to ignore those parts of the Bible that challenge you. Because when you're studying the Bible in other ways, if you're just looking up a verse here or a verse there, you can be selective. You can ignore certain verses. When you're doing biblical theology, that prods us to have a bigger view of God. Because we read the expanse of what he's doing in the Bible and it teaches us to widen our gaze of him, expand our understanding of him. Biblical theology pushes us into a bigger view of God. That's ultimately why we do it. So the life of Abraham, particularly though we're looking at the covenant that God makes with Abram, it's a great place to introduce biblical theology because this covenant and Abraham's life come up all throughout the Bible. 
Do you know that Abraham is mentioned 231 times in the Old Testament? And 71 times, 71 of those times, or sorry, 230 times in the Bible, over 230 times in the Bible, over 70 of those are in the New Testament. You need to know this man to know the story of the Bible. It's not really an exaggeration to say the rest of the Bible is the answer to the question, how does God fulfill this covenant? Christianity is all about Jesus. It really is. But what you'll find when you read the Bible is that Jesus doesn't really show up until about two-thirds of the way through the book. Ultimately, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise to bless the world through Abram. But there is much that God is doing to bring that about. So if you want to know, well, Christianity is all about Jesus. Where's Jesus in this? The answer to how does God fulfill this covenant? The answer is Jesus. And the Bible is all about telling us how. So in Genesis 12, God makes this promise. But we're going to come up to a little bit more of a problem with the promise in Genesis 15. That's what we're reading. So Abraham has a vision and God says to him, this is still, we're still in verse one. We're going to pick, it, pick up the pace now. Genesis 15, one. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is, is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring. And a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man, Eleazar, shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, Look toward heaven and number the stars. And if you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him, that is Abram, as righteousness. A couple things, what God was doing was bringing this man who lived at a time when they only had fire to produce light and there was no such thing as light pollution, and they didn't live near a major city. If you go outside here and you can see about nine stars, you go, oh, good night. Have you ever been in a place far away from a city? Maybe you were camping, you were out in the open, maybe you grew up in the country, you used to go up to the mountains when we lived in Colorado, and there it is almost scary how many stars you can see. God says, see all these stars and more. That's what I'm going to, that's, that's how many offspring you're going to have. When God originally spoke to Abram, Abram was 75 years old and his wife, Sarah, was well beyond her childbearing years. So Abraham's concerned that he's too old to have a son, an heir, and if he doesn't have a true heir, how can he possibly be the father of a great nation? But God tells Abram that part of the promise will include a son in his older age. And then it says in verse 6, and this is the verse we're going to concentrate on. Abram believed the Lord, 
and he counted it to him as righteousness. This is an important verse in biblical theology for several reasons. First, this is an early explanation of how people become righteous before God. Read Abram's story later today. Just read the book of Genesis later today. You can do it with a cup of coffee in the afternoon. Abram was no model of personal righteousness. He does some nice things and he's got a lot of faith sometimes, but he screws up just as often. God counts or sees Abram as righteous, not because of what he does, but because of what he believes. This theme of righteousness by belief comes up over and over again in the Bible. Specifically, there are two New Testament writers who bring up this very verse when they are talking about the nature of true, godly, biblical faith. In his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul quotes this verse and is essentially saying the founder of Israel, God's historic people, was not made righteous by his piety, by his works, but by his belief in God. And then Paul, who wrote Romans, says that that's still the way that people are made righteous by God today. Not by their piety, but by their belief, specifically their belief in Jesus. Paul makes this connection between Abram and every other person in the world saying, in between this point where we're at in Genesis 15, and when Paul wrote Romans, it was, almost two, it was over 2,000 years later, God is going to do many more great things to reveal himself in more specific ways. But the same thing that was going to be seen throughout the history of the Bible from Genesis 15 all the way through, in the same way that God still does it today, God has always saved people by their faith in him and his promises. For Abram, it was the belief that God would do what he said he was going to do. For us, it's our faith in what God says he has done, that he has brought through Abraham's descendants a line that includes and really culminated in the birth of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, that Jesus was unjustly executed so that anybody who rightly deserves death, when they believe in the work of God, their belief leads to the forgiveness of their sins and they too, like Abram, who believe in the promises of God and the work of God, are counted righteous. And the rest of the scriptures are an explanation of how that happens. And the rest of this chapter is a preview of, of, of how God will bring about this promise specifically to Abram. And we see in that a, a bit of a model, a bit of a, the groundwork laying a foundation for how he does it for all people. It's not going to happen right away. God doesn't just do it in Genesis. It's not going to come simply. But God is going to offer to Abram the gift of knowing that God will be with him and his people, his descendants, and they eventually will be great in this land. And just kind of for the sake of time, 
We just won't do everything in this chapter, but I want you to see a little bit of it, and then I want to talk biblical theology with you. So if you kind of look down at the chapter, if you were to read verses 7 to 11, God has Abraham prepare some animals in a ritualistic way. Birds come, they try to eat the animals, but Abram drives them away. Abraham is preparing for sort of a ceremony. And now listen to what God says. This is verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. This happens later when Abraham's descendants are forced into slavery in Egypt. That's between Genesis and Exodus. Verse 14, but I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve. And afterwards, they shall come out with great possessions. That happens in the Exodus. As for you, you shall go to your fathers, which means to die, in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites. That's the people who inhabited that land are, is not yet complete. So God has just told Abram, He's going to be able to die in peace in old age, knowing that God would fulfill the promises that he's making. But his sons and grandsons and then great-grandsons should prepare for some suffering. If you look in your study guide, there's a, a timeline that shows some of the descendants of Abraham when they came just to kind of orient you in the place that they fall in the world. And ultimately, those are the people um, with Joseph and Joseph's family that end up enslaved in Egypt. And the reason to tell Abram all this now is that so he can pass on this message, that in the midst of their suffering, People should not feel, Abram's people, should not feel that God has forgotten his promise or that he no longer intends to fulfill it. And the same thing is true for each of us today. The Bible is clear that each one of us, same promise that he made to Abraham, each one of us is going to experience hardship and many of us will endure suffering. But we should not think that is because God has forgotten us. He tells us that just like he told it to Abram. So that while we are in the midst of suffering, we will know that there is deliverance coming. 1 Peter 5.10 in the New Testament says that after we have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace will give himself strengthen and restore every person who believes in Jesus Christ. And the last thing that happens in Genesis 15 is for God to show Abram his power and remind Abram that he always fulfills his promises. And we read this now so that we can know the same thing, that God always fulfills his promises. And so when he's promised us in 1 Peter, that we will suffer for a little while, but after that, God will strengthen us and restore us. We can believe that despite our inability to follow through on our promises, God will be sure to follow through on that one. So look at what God does 
for Abram. That's why it's good to get into biblical theology. It helps us into the, enter into the world, into the mind of people. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. These are the pieces of the animals that Moses has uh, prepared in a ritualistic way. On that day, the Lord God made a covenant with Abram. And then it tells us about that covenant and that the land becomes part of the covenant as well. The reason for a smoking pot and a flaming torch was because these two things were ancient symbols of witchcraft. Abraham's ancient Near Eastern worldview with his experience living in Ur and Haran would have been well familiar with this. He would have recognized this and seen in this ceremony that God is saying that he is powerful and sovereign over all other powers, both in the world and all other powers spiritual. And because he's the one, God's the one making the promise, it will surely be fulfilled. And this is actually the ceremony where the promise that we read earlier from Genesis 12, the promise from God becomes a covenant of God. In Genesis 17, God brings this covenant to fulfillment, begins to fulfill it, I suppose, doesn't bring it to fulfillment, but in a more earnest way by saying that now is the time for Abram to have a son. He's 99 years old when he has his son. He changes Abram's name to Abraham and he gives all the people who will descend from Abraham a sign that they belong to the covenant family of Abraham that God promised to multiply and to make great and to use to bless the world. And if you read through the Old Testament, some of the big names that you might know, David or Isaiah, and if you get into the New Testament and you read into the Gospels and the letters of Paul and of Peter and of James, they will all look back to this time to these verses in the life of Abraham as their foundation for how they understand God's promises to be given and fulfilled according to his word. So you can do a lot of biblical theology just by knowing what we've discussed right now and then seeing Abraham's name come up over and over and over again hundreds of times in the Bible. So let me ask you, let's do this together. I want to just do a a little bit of teaching, not necessarily related to Abraham, although I'll apply it a little bit. I want to talk about doing biblical theology. This is building your study skills. I want to tell you four kind of mechanisms or aspects of doing biblical theology. And I'm going to do it sort of asking some questions. So how do you do biblical theology? First, in order to do biblical theology, you have to ask where this is in the sequence of the Bible. So what we've done is we've already done that. We've said Abraham comes early in the Bible. Genesis 12 is just 12 chapters in. Genesis 15, 15 chapters in. Genesis 17, 17 chapters in. We're very early on in the Bible, but we are hundreds and thousands of years after the creation of the world and the first people. So where is it in the Bible? 
Now, now you've got to know the Bible isn't always laid out chronologically. So orient yourself by asking, where am I in history? And what did these people know of faith in God? If you want a chronological look at the Bible, we put one in the appendix of your study guide for you. You can see a chronological work of the Bible. You can also probably look one up if you've got a study Bible. If you, you can find one online very easily. Just kind of uh, look at the Bible uh, in chronological order. So orient yourself by asking, where am I in history and what do these people know of, of God? So imagine Abraham's life. Just imagine his life over 4,000 years ago now. He knows because there's been no such thing as the Christian church. He doesn't have a Bible. He knows little to nothing of God. God just comes to him and says, move from Haran and go, go to Canaan. And he says, okay. He believes God. And actually, Hebrews is going to go back. I'll talk about this in a minute. Hebrews is going to go back and say, this is part of him, what it means for him to believe in God. He, he goes to a place that's foreign to him that he's never been, that his people aren't from. Because God, who he doesn't barely even knows, calls him to that. So ask, where is this in the sequence in the Bible? Second, when you've got questions, when you're confused about what something means, work outward from where you are in the Bible, not inward from your own experience. This is a foundational principle for doing biblical theology. Work outward from the Bible, not inward from your own experiences. In other words, start in the Bible and draw your ideas out of it. Don't try to stuff your ideas into it. Here's how that works. There are all sorts of places in the Bible, just as an example, where generosity, even charity, but certainly care for the poor and the disenfranchised are the norm. Societies of the Bible are often much more concerned with the well-being of others than we are today. Instead of bringing a mostly modern understanding of, of work ethic and wealth to the Bible and trying to cram it into the Bible, instead ask, what is the Bible trying to teach me about the need for societies to join together to care for the broken? Just one example. Could do that with a lot of different things. But wealth is often looked at very differently in the scriptures than it is even in the church today. A third good practice for biblical theology. Trace themes through the Bible where they come and see where they come up. So ask, where else does this come up through the Bible? I already told you, Abraham's the perfect example of this because he's right at the beginning of the Bible and he comes up hundreds of times. So try two things just right out of Genesis 15 to trace a theme through the Bible. You can, you can learn how to do this very easy. Go to an online Bible search. There's a bunch of them that's free and type in or just copy and paste exactly the words of Genesis 15, 6. Let's teach you how to do this. You will find three different places in the New Testament that quote Genesis 15, 6 verbatim, directly. One is Romans 4, another is Galatians 3, and a third is James 2. Read those chapters to see how the New Testament writers 
are applying and learning from this Old Testament verse. You can do the same thing with other verses in the Bible. Last week, we talked about a concordance. That's maybe at the end of your Bible, or if you've got another volume that shows you where particular words or names come up again or at other places in the Bible. The great thing about online Bibles is their, their search engines are vast, are just vast concordances. So you can type in words and see what other verses they have come up in the Bible. Or better yet, even do it in reverse. Whenever you see an Old Testament verse quoted in the New Testament, go back and read the wider context in the Old Testament to get a sense for both how that verse was, how those words were used originally in the Old Testament, but it's also going to teach you how the New Testament writer is deepening our understanding of that Old Testament verse by drawing truth from the Old Covenant and showing us how it works in the New Covenant. So you can do it both ways. Look at things in the Old Testament and trace them all the way through the Bible using a concordance or a search engine. Or when you come up to something that's quoted from the Old Testament within the New Testament, go back and read it in the Old Testament. It's all biblical theology. Just spend a lot of time in the Bible. And a fourth way, a final way that biblical theology can be helpful is in clarifying difficult passages. The Bible has many human authors, but it's only got one true divine author. God's word is consistent. So where you are having trouble understanding what the Bible is saying, look for other places in it that are more clear and use those to help you in your understanding. Eventually, toward the very end of this series, we're going to do a whole week just on this principle, but we're going to do just a minute on it now. So if you're wondering, for example, what exactly about Abraham's faith was pleasing to God, and then you kind of want to know, how can I have that kind of faith? How can I also have a faith that's pleasing to God? What you can do is you can say, well, I'm not sure exactly from Genesis 15, what about Abraham's faith is good and, and why God counted it to him as righteousness I wonder where else helps me to illuminate that or elaborates on that in the scriptures. And if you did a search for Abraham or you did a search for Abraham's faith, you will see again that it's mentioned in 17 and a few other places, but you will then go and eventually make your way to Hebrews 11. And in Hebrews 11, starting at verse 8, it will tell us almost explicitly how Abraham's faith in God worked and why it could be counted to him as righteousness. There in Hebrews 11:8 it says that Abraham followed God to a new land, that Abraham believed that God could give Sarah a child in their old age, despite the fact that she'd been barren all her life, and he believed that one day God, even though they would be suffer and sojourn in a far land in slavery, they would be brought back to that land and they would one day be numerous and build a city there that would stand Jerusalem, that would stand as a monument to the glory of God. 
So if you wonder, well, what was Abraham's faith like in, in Genesis 15 that could be counted to him as God? You can go to, Genesis, or to Hebrews 11 and see that there it's elaborating on it saying, Abraham trusted God even when things seemed unsure. And he believed God even when things seemed unnatural, that they would be miraculous. And he would believe that God was fully capable of making bold promises long into the future and that these promises of God would surely come to pass in the lives of his descendants. All of that is laid out in Hebrews 11 and it helps us to understand Genesis 15. You can do that in biblical theology. You can use other parts of the Bible to elaborate on where you're confused or where you're stuck. So let's end here. What about, what about your faith? You can talk all day long about Abraham's faith. One of the great things about the Bible, it says that anybody can be a descendant of Abraham. You don't have to physically, biologically descend from him to be a member of the covenant community of God. But anybody who has faith like him and the New Testament goes on to point that faith directly into Jesus Christ to say that anybody who has faith in Jesus Christ will have that faith credited to them and be found righteous before God because of the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Romans says that Abraham is the forerunner to all those who believe in Jesus. For Abraham, everything that God said was future promises. Everything. But think about for you and me. We have so much more. If Abraham could believe God, we have so much more. We have all that God did in his life. And all that God did before Jesus. And all that God did through Jesus. And all that God taught the apostles and they've taught the church after Jesus. And so for us, for Abraham, it was all future promises. For us, it's part past work that God has already done. And then there are more promises to be fulfilled. So the direct questions are, do you believe in the past work of Jesus to save you from your sin? Galatians says that Jesus went to the cross for past, present, and future sins. All your sins were future when Jesus went to the cross because that was a long time ago. And do you believe in the future promises of God? That he'll come again, Jesus will come again to set everything right. If you believe the past work of Jesus on the cross sufficient to save you from your sin, and you believe that God raised Jesus from the dead and Jesus will one day come again. And the Bible says you are like a child of Abraham, meaning you are a partaker in the promises that God made to him. And if you don't believe that, the word of God is pleading with you today to believe. This is the theology of the Bible. One story God redeeming, reconciling all that he made to himself. I really want you 
to be able to feel confident in reading the Bible for yourself. And so if I can help you with that, if there are questions you want to work through, if there's ways that you are stuck in your Bible study, I really want to help you with that. So don't be afraid to ask. For now, let's pray and we'll be dismissed for the rest of our day. God, receive all the praise, honor, and glory. You are indeed worthy. Thank you for your servant, Abraham. I thank you for my friends here, those listening online that are partakers of the promise. Children of Abraham were called because we believed God. And to us also, that belief through Jesus has been counted to us as righteousness. Give us a greater love for you, for your word, for your people, and for the ministry of reconciliation. We pray, we ask, we pray that our hope would continue to be in the great and powerful name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Our Savior Evangelical Free Church is a congregation located in Wheeling, Illinois. Our vision can be summed up in four words, building community, bringing Christ. To learn more about what these words mean, visit our website at osefc.org.